Um, It's Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, and he'd cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to me, swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were all drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons, sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man, and they told him about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave the region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus did not let him go. He said, go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and she'd spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus... She came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was free from her suffering. At once, Jesus realised that the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking round to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. 
Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. And when they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and he told them to give her something to eat. Chapter 6 from verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there, except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed with oil many people who were ill and healed them. King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well known. Some were saying, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said, he is Elijah. And still others claimed, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be righteous and to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and their leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a dish. 
the king was greatly distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a dish. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered round Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus told them to make all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they, eat, so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was 5,000. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the lows. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout the region and carried those who were ill on mats um, to wherever he, they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed those who were ill in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So we just pray for Nick as he joins us from next door. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word through the Gospels. We know that all of this is true. We know that you teach us every, every word for a reason, Lord. And we pray for Nick as he brings this message to us. Please uh, have Nick unfold this word to us. Fill him with your Holy Spirit so that we hear the words you want us to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got here a picture of a young man named Hamad Ashuri. And it comes from some things I read in this week. It's quite interesting how the Lord works and how many of the things that I'm going to talk to you about 
this morning have happened in the last week. Um, so this is something I read from Open Doors. Uh, he's a young Iranian man. He began in 2021, he began a 10 month prison sentence simply for being a Christian. Um, and he refused to inform on other Christians in Iran um, and other believers. And so he was badly beaten. Um, and what his response was, was this. He said, I thank God for considering me worthy of enduring this persecution because of him. It's just amazing, isn't it? I thank God for considering me worthy of enduring this persecution because of him. Now, that's discipleship, isn't it? I had another uh, example of discipleship in the last week. So Indonesia with uh, Rio, um, they're reaching young men and women for, for Christ. They're discipling them and sending them out as missionaries um, to the to Muslim communities uh, and to completely unreached people groups. And what struck me, I've heard Rio say this um, time and again, but what I hadn't realized was just how young these missionaries are. This is discipleship, isn't it? And what does that say about our discipleship? Why are we not more like that? And I wonder whether part of the reason is maybe we don't really understand what we've been saved from. I think we understand what we're saved into, but not always what we've been saved from. Another thing which came up in my reading this week was Psalm 134. And it's really clear that Israel, uh, as a people, knew what they had been saved from. And they rehearsed it in the sense, not that they practiced it, but that they... Um, they talked about it. Uh, they talked about it, obviously, in the Paso year, year on year, but also in their songs, they would say what they had been saved from. And so here's Psalm 134 as an example. He struck down the firstborn of Egypt, that's the Lord, the firstborn of people and animals. He sent his signs and wonders into your midst, Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his servants. He struck down many nations and king and killed many mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites, old king of Bashan, and all the kings of Canaan. And he gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to his people, Israel. So Israel, the people of Israel, knew that they'd been saved from a horrible slavery, um, a, a captivity in which they uh, were the lowest of the low, and they were made to make bricks. And then God comes and by a, a miraculous and, and powerful liberation, um, God saves them with a horrible judgment on their enemy. God strikes down their enemies um, and sets them free. And they, they travel to the promised land and God preserves them again um, by his powerful hand. And at the end, then, he, God clears a space for them in, in Canaan. He gives them this land as an inheritance. And I wonder whether we recognize the same. Don't always recognize it. being saved from a horrible degrading captivity to sin by the powerful warring of God against Satan, our enemy, by the ministry of Jesus. And we are being preserved by God powerfully on this uh, journey that we are on, which is why we pray, deliver us from the evil one um, in the Lord's Prayer. And God has opened up a spacious, um, peaceful place for us to live, a delightful inheritance, which is now for us to be in Christ and to know God through him and to be filled by his spirit, but in time will be a new creation where everything is new and where everything, all sin and everything that relates to sin and uh, the power, the penalty and the pain of sin will be gone. And we get a different picture of this in these uh, little stories out of Mark 5. Um, and so we're gonna ask the question, uh, what was each of these characters saved from? 
And what we'll see in each of them is each of these characters give you a picture um, of what you and I as disciples have been, have been saved from. So we start with the man um, at the beginning of, of Mark 5, <clears throat> who's possessed by an impure spirit. So here is a man who's living in, in Gentile territory. Jesus has gone across the lake to, to the region of the Gerasenes. Um, so he's gone into Gentile territory. He's outside of Israel. So this man is an outsider uh, to start with. Um, he's living among the tombs. He is, he is unclean. If you had contact with the dead, it left you ritually unclean uh, for seven days. He lives in a place where, where pigs are being raised, possibly uh, for the Roman army, because obviously it wouldn't be used for Jewish consumption. So he's doubly unclean. He has an impure spirit. He is possessed. He's triply unclean. And we read in Luke's account that he has not worn any clothes um, for a long time. This man is as lost as lost can be. And people can't even bind him with chains. They can't even tie him down. Um, something supernatural is happening there, isn't it? Because uh, a human flesh can't break chains. Something um, powerful and spiritual is happening. Here is this man lost and bound uh, in chains. He is in a bondage that cannot be restrained or broken by human efforts. And he cries out day and night and he cuts himself with stones. But when Jesus comes, he prostrates himself before Jesus. It's a word that implies um, worship, that he bows down our, our reverence. I think this is the last desperate act of, of the man. Because as he comes to Jesus, Jesus tells the spirit to come out of the man. It's not the man speaking. It's the spirit inside him using his voice. And the spirit begs, as, as Richard showed us, uh, so graphically begs not to be tortured. And the evil spirit addresses Jesus as most high God. So when the two meet, uh, it's a no contest. Um, the, the evil spirit is not trying to um, contest the ground with Jesus. He knows he's defeated. He knows that Jesus is going to rescue this man and he is going to be cast out. They're just begging uh, for special treatment. So there's no contest when Jesus um, and evil spirits come up against each other. Jesus asks for its name and it says legion, for we are many. Um, a legion was the largest troop unit in the Roman army. It was 5,600 um, soldiers. And he or they, the spirit, I guess there is a spirit spokesman, um, asks that they be sent into the pigs. And so 2,000 pigs, you know the story, run down the steep hillside and are drowned in the water. And at this point, materialists that we are, we're usually more worried about the pigs than anything else. But Luke says, in, um, Jesus says rather in Luke 15, I tell you that in the same way that we're more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who do not need to repent. And I think that's how we should read this. There is more significance in one man's release from evil and from bondage than the lives of 2,000 pigs is worth, or even than the livelihoods of the neighboring pig farmers. It's worth much more to Jesus that this one man is released from his bondage and brought into the kingdom of heaven. Where does this leave the man? It leaves him at the end of the story, we read that he's seated. Um, he's at peace in that sense. He's not running about cutting himself. He's not shouting. And he's taken up a posture of discipleship before Jesus. Um, 
the rabbis would have their students um, sit around them. So in that sense, he's become a disciple. We read that he's dressed, that he's clothed, which is interesting because um, Mark notes that, but he didn't note what um, we read in the, in the other Gospels, that, that this man was naked. He was running around naked amongst the tombs. And now he's dressed, he's clothed. How on earth did that happen? That's just another little part of, of, of the miracle. He, he was this naked bloke, and now his shame has been covered. His shame has been covered by Jesus. And we read that he's in his right mind. He's in his right mind. And he's asking to be a follower of Jesus, we read. He asks Jesus, can he please um, follow him? And on this occasion, Jesus says, no, um, they're outside of uh, Israel heartlands. Um, he sends him off to tell other people. But I love this thing about him being in his right mind. And it gives me hope, I suppose, as somebody who doesn't always feel that I am in my right mind, um, that following Jesus uh, is a way to be more and more right-minded about everything. The most logical, scientific, sensible, right-minded thing you can do, the most right-minded place you can be this morning is to be right where you are, rescued by Jesus, um, submitting to his lordship as a disciple and asking to follow him. Resist then, don't be put down by um, the popular science documentaries um, or the lobby groups or the politicians or the drama programs full of dodgy vicars who will all try uh, and, and tell you that to, to follow Jesus is idiocy. It is not. It is the most right-minded thing you can do. And it is the thing that will make you the most right-minded in the long term. Jesus is a great resource uh, for those who struggle with their mental health. He is the best, most powerful resource. Not saying that, that counselling and at times medication is not important, but, but Jesus, follow Jesus is to be in your right mind. So what about you? This is a story deliberately included to tell us about discipleship. Do you recognise your pre-Christian life as one of shame, of uncleanness, and of humanly unbreakable bondage. It's less obvious if you've been brought up in a Christian household because you've been protected from the worst of things. But all of us were by nature objects of wrath. People doing shameful things because we weren't doing them for the glory of God and in an unbreakable bondage to sin. Or were you still carrying that? Still carrying that this morning? Carrying the shame. What are you going to do today? But let's move on. We need to talk about the little girl. Um, now, Mark sandwiches this story of the little girl around the story um, of the woman with the bleeding. Um, and I guess that's the way it happened. But Mark is quite often doing this. Um, as we read through chapter six, I noticed again, Mark has created another sandwich. Um, another sandwich story. He starts talking off about Jesus sending out the twelve. Then he talks about John the Baptist. And then the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all the things they've done. You see, he sandwiched a story. Um, the bread is the story about the 12. John the Baptist is the jam or the meat, depending on your preference. And then he comes back to the 12 um, with the other bit of bread. Um, and the point is that whatever happens in the middle, 
uh, make sense of what happens around the outside. So he's telling disciples that the ultimate, possibly the ultimate implication of your discipleship is you might lose your life. And so Mark is always making sandwiches. It's worth remembering that as you read it, see how many you can spot. Um, and he does that today. Um, so we start with the, the little girl. Um, back in Jewish territory, um, synagogue leader comes and um, it says again, actually, he falls at Jesus' feet. It's worth noting. He, he was, um, he's a lay member of the synagogue. He's a powerful person in a sense, but he's a lay member. He's not a professional priest. He's not, but he's responsible for organizing the worship and teaching and everything else that goes on in the synagogue. So he's like a church secretary in a church where there isn't a pastor. But he knows that his daughter is on her deathbed. And he pleads that Jesus go and lay hands on her. But before that story goes any further, we get, um, sorry, that was little girl. But before we get that story, um, Jesus is interrupted. And we get the story of, of the woman with the bleeding. Again, which we've heard. So in the hot press of this crowd, there's a woman. And if you listen to her situation, she, she's had constant bleeding. I think we assume it's a gynae problem, which has made her persistently unclean. She has not been able to come to church, as it were, um, for 12 years. And the words are piled on each other. It's been for many years, been much suffering. She's had a multitude of useless doctors. She's spent a mountain of money on it, all of her money, in fact, and she's not improved. She's got worse. What does she do? She's heard about Jesus. So she comes to him and she touches his cloak. Not entirely clear why touching the cloak is the right thing to do, but it is an act of faith uh, on her part. And as she does it, the bleeding immediately stops. And she knows in herself that she's freed from her shame. She knows forgiveness. This was an illness that was shameful that had prevented her from worship. But at the same time, Jesus knows in himself that power's gone out for him and he asks, um, who is it? This woman, she's violated the Torah just by being out in public. She's violated the law again by, by touching Jesus while she was unclean. So she's afraid, but what does she do? For the third time in this chapter, someone comes and falls at Jesus' feet. And you see, she wanted something, she wanted a cure. Jesus wanted someone, he wants a relationship. One commentator says, discipleship's not simply getting our needs met. It is being in the presence of Jesus, being known by him and following him. And Jesus tells her that her faith has healed her. Or it's a word that means both healed and saved. It's a Greek word that means healed and saved. And the Aramaic or the Hebrew word behind it would have been Yashur, which is a variant on the Hebrew name for Yeshua, who is Jesus. But he says to her, um, you have been healed, saved, healed, saved, same thing. So Jesus confirms, Jesus wants her not only to have had the experience, but he wants her to have heard his word interpreting that experience to her. He says, you have peace with God, which she's known in her heart, but she needs to hear it in word too. You have peace with God and you are being freed 
from your suffering. And it's just worthwhile noting that we need that too. We need the Bible to interpret to us and control what we experience. And so we experience in ourselves uncleanness, shame, humanly unresolvable bondage before we were Christians. And the Bible explains that to us, but also, of course, it explains that Christ is the one, when we come to him and fall at his feet, who can give us peace with God and freedom from our bondage. Sorry, I'm not keeping up, am I? So there's the, um, there's the red word for those who are doing the, doing the sermon notes. What about the little girl? Briefly uh, and more simply, it seems like the, the interruption of, of the little girl's story um, with uh, the woman's story has cost Jairus's little girl her life. And Jesus overhears um, Jairus getting the news. So somebody comes to Jairus and says, your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher um, anymore. And Jesus overhears it. And it's an interesting word because you know, the Greek word, it can mean to overhear, which is what happens. He hears somebody talking to somebody else. But it can mean to ignore, which he does. And it can mean to refuse to listen or to deny the truth of something. And all those are true of Jesus' response. Um, he overhears the death notice, but he ignores it and he discounts the, the truth of it. And so he tells Jairus, don't be afraid, just believe. Present tense, keep on believing. This is what disciples do. They keep on trusting. Even when the funeral directors have been called and the professional mourners uh, have arrived, Jesus says, keep trusting. Jesus cancels the funeral arrangements. And with a touch and a command, as with a woman, he raises her to life. Little lady, little lady, get up. And she gets up and walks around. That's what disciples do. This is discipleship. You were dead. You were dead. And now you're alive. And you get up and walk around with new life in Christ. Why that little story sandwich? Well, Mark is making a contrast. Jairus um, has a position. He's a synagogue leader, so he has honour and he has a name. Um, he's called Jairus. We're told that. And he approaches Jesus face to face, but he lacks faith. The woman is not named. She is shamed. She creeps up behind Jesus anonymously in a crowd, but she has faith. She is the example to us as disciples. So what do disciples do? Just to try and, and draw this together. What do disciples do? What do we learn about discipleship? Disciples fall at Jesus' feet. It's the starting point of a road of discipleship. Falling at Jesus' feet in crushing shame. Shame for actions, shame for attitudes. Have you been ashamed yet of, of sin? If you've never been ashamed of sin, you haven't started on this discipleship journey. One of the Holy Spirit's ministries is to bring um, conviction uh, of sin. That is, your, that is your starting point in a journey of, of discipleship. Disciples start by falling at Jesus' feet, knowing their, their awful uncleanness. 
like the lady, like the man, like a man running naked um, amongst tombs, unable to enter into God's presence. And in terrible bondage, in complete helplessness and, and, and despair, have you ever cried out to the Lord because you, you, you're desperate? Because sin has, has a victory over you. Uh, it's like the chains and you can't break it. A recognition that you can't rescue yourself by self-improvement is the starting point and the continuing point of discipleship. So what do disciples do? They start by falling at Jesus' feet. Because of the shame, because of the bondage. But they come in faith. Come in faith. And when you have faith, and you look at what Jesus did on the cross, and faith says, he did that for me, then, then he can heal you and, and forgive you. All three, one writer says, transfer their uncleanness to Jesus. And to each, Jesus bestows the cleansing wholeness of God. So you know, as we've come up to Easter, what Jesus has done. Whether you are man, woman, or child, he will cover your shame. He will cover your shame by hanging naked on the cross for you. By hanging naked on a cross for you. He can heal your hemorrhaging, your uncleanness by bleeding from nail wounds in his hands and in his feet. And he can break your bondage to sin by breaking death itself, by dying, giving up his life and rising again from the dead, being raised by God from the dead, death is broken. So what about you? Starting point of discipleship is to fall at his feet, recognizing that you are unclean and shamed and in bondage in a way that you can do nothing about it. Fall at his feet. I say, Jesus, please, clean me, heal me. Release me. And he does. And at the same time, you have to say, I want to walk with you. And he will say, yes, come. But maybe you've got yourself into a shame, even as a Christian, where you are shamed and bound and unclean. Well, come again. Come again and fall at his feet. Just fall at his feet and ask for the freedom and the cleanness and the honour to be restored to you again. But this was another passage that I read in the week, and you might want to uh, take the middle bit out because I can't get it on the screen. You might want to read all of it. This is Peter again. You remember that Peter is writing through Mark, we reckon. This is Peter again. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he's given us his very great and precious promises 
so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So he asks you to add, what is your next step in discipleship? If you fall at his feet, if you're walking with Jesus, there is a next step. What is it now? He says, add to your faith goodness. Did you just need to add to your faith some action, some goodness, maybe to those around you, neighbours, friends, work colleagues, add to your goodness knowledge? Maybe you have faith and goodness, but you don't know very much of the Bible. Is it time to be digging in to scriptures? Add to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness. The godliness, mutual affection. Maybe you recognize you have all these things. Perseverance is pressing on and godliness. But maybe with godliness, you just haven't got mutual affection for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe it's time to add it. Other mutual affection love. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But listen to this. Whoever does not have them is short-sighted and blind forgetting that they've been cleansed from their past sins. If you don't have those things increasingly, it's because you've forgotten what Jesus has done for you. He's freed you from bondage. He's made you clean from uncleanness. He has redeemed you from shame. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray for a moment. Father God, thank you for sending your son Jesus. Thank you you sent him on this mission to, to rescue us from being controlled by sin, to rescue us from the shame that we brought upon ourselves to rescue us from the uncleanness that we had in your side. And instead to give us uh, cleanness before you, access to your throne. Enough honor to stand before you and call you Father, and to release us from the control of sin. And we ask you today, just put things on our heart to help us move on and grow in Christ. What is the next thing you want us to add? We ask you to tell us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.